Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. From home or on the road? Cat's a favorite story. You are listening to Cat the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to Cat the Story. Our first storyteller is our good friend, Lightning Charlie. His story, Fire in the Hole, is nerve-wracking, serving as a powerful reminder of the precious gift of life. Charlie is a recording artist, author, and entertainer. Well, this is Lightning Charlie, and I uh, want to say hello and uh, greetings, and thank you, Lucia, for, uh, for having me on uh, Catch the Story. Um, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to get to talk to you and, and, and yours and, and your listeners, and I uh, wanted to share with you all uh, a story that I included in my book, Off the Record, um, which was written, uh, this, this story was written uh, back in September of 2005, uh, just after the uh, Katrina hurricane and subsequent disaster down in uh, the Gulf of Mexico in the southeastern United States in uh, August, late August of 2005. So um, on the heels of that disaster, which was uh, all over the news, all over television, um, you couldn't escape the images of those poor people suffering and the devastation uh, that was Katrina. I was moved to write this blog. So here we go. From Off the Record, The Trials and Tribulations of a Traveling Troubadour, Chapter 6, Fire in the Hole. As I'm writing this, I'm watching television coverage of the Katrina hurricane disaster in Louisiana and Mississippi. My heart goes out to those poor people who are in the midst of terrible suffering at the loss of their homes and all of their material possessions. Greater sympathy have I for those who are grieving the loss of a whole lot more than merely material things. I'd like to relate to you a story of how I lost my home and most everything I owned at Christmas time, 1983. At that time, I was in college and living in a run-down old rental house trailer in the sticks with a roommate. Uh, in the sticks is a uh, <laughs> Southern American uh, colloquialism that means way out in the boondocks in the country. Um, although the digs were shabby, we had a lot of real nice things in the house. We were the only guys around that had a videotape player. That was a Betamax complete with some of the obligatory videos of the day, Scarface, P. 
Pink Floyd's The Wall, Richard Pryor, Live in Concert, Easy Money, etc. We were super bad. Then there was my collection of vinyl, that's LPs, EPs, and 45s, that numbered about 1,000 in number that I had been collecting my whole life. I also had some really cool things framed, like Stevie Ray Vaughan's autograph on a club poster, along with some guitar picks he had given to me, photos of my Aunt Jeanette with Elvis and his family at Graceland, as well as a lifetime's worth of irreplaceable family photographs. And there was also my wardrobe. I once asked Jerry Portnoy, the harmonica player in Muddy Waters' band, for his advice on leading a blues band. He looked up and down at me and said, Dress like a pimp. <laughs> and I did. Early one morning, a few days before Christmas, it was cold, gray, and as we say around here, spitting snow. My roommate, Derek, was leaving for work. I was asleep on the couch in the living room wearing a groovy set of custom pajamas that's long john underwear bottoms and a sleeveless American flag t-shirt. <laughs> now I need to point out for the benefit of our story that there was nobody alive that was a heavier sleeper than I, not one. I used to buy the loudest alarm clocks and clock radios I could find and then to wake me I'd set several of them around my room to go off like a symphony. Friends spending the night trying to wake me in the morning, afternoon, would become fearful that I was comatose or dead, honestly. When I was a kid, growing up in Miami, Florida, we lived in a little duplex apartment. Our apartment was upstairs, and another family's apartment was directly downstairs. My parents were good friends with the couple downstairs, and I was pals with their son, who was my age, about six or seven years old. Well, late one night, a regiment of plainclothes cops drove vans and pickup trucks across the sidewalk onto the lawn around our house, and using axes on the front door and rifle stocks on the windows, busted their way into the downstairs apartment and opened fire on the dad who was standing in his bedroom in his pajamas with his wife in bed beside him and his son a few feet away. He died from multiple gunshot wounds. Supposedly, he had ties to drug traffickers from South America, but my folks never knew of it. He was a solid family man, vice president of a bank. The undercover police, who were most likely the ones high on cocaine, said in their report that they had told him to freeze, and he, quote, moved toward his wife, end quote, who was lying in the bed. So they opened up on him. But my point is that all the screeching tires, the breaking and entering with axes, and the massive amounts of shotgun and small arms fire, and then the screaming and chaos which followed did not rouse me from my slumber upstairs. I slept right on through it all, and I doubt that I even turned over. This was a blessing to my parents who didn't figure these ponytailed, blue-jeaned van hippies with shotguns for policemen. They thought these thugs were crazed killers who were coming upstairs for us next. I'm sorry to digress here, but this is just meant to give you an understanding of just how deeply I slept once I was asleep. You could not wake me up.
This particular snowy December morning at about 6 a.m. as my roommate Derek went out the front door to drive to work, for some reason, I woke up. Me waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning was more than very unusual. It was next to impossible. Then, instead of just turning over and going back to sleep, I got up to go to my bedroom. This was not only abnormal, but also totally unprecedented for me. If I fell asleep at the top of a ladder, that's where I would stay until I was ready to get up. And it wouldn't be at no 6 o'clock in the morning either. (laughs) But on this morning, I woke up, got up, and went down the hall to my bedroom. If I had made it back to my bedroom at the end of the hall, I would not be writing this today. Halfway down the hall, I stopped at the bathroom to get a drink of water out of the sink. This also was a very peculiar thing for me to do. And when I stopped in the hallway bathroom, I smelled smoke. It was coming from Derek's room, which was adjacent to the bathroom. This is a very small, you know, single-wide trailer. So when I smelled the smoke coming out of Derek's room, I rushed into his room, and there I saw his small clock radio was on fire. The fireman later ruled ours an electrical fire, and the cause of the blaze was faulty wiring, which is no surprise. This was a very old, dilapidated, ramshackle trailer that we were renting uh again, out in the sticks. Apparently, when Derek left his room uh, and turned off his light on the wall uh, at the switch, it had apparently had shorted and had caught fire. Now, wide awake, I ran into the bathroom, which is only, you know, two or three feet away. Again, this is a tiny little single-wide house trailer, not a sprawling southern plantation. At this point, I was fully aware that I had a problem, but I wasn't yet thinking that my house was burning down. The flames were only about a foot square. My plan was to simply put the fire out. I grabbed the big bath towels off the shower rack in the bathroom and just turned to smother out the fire. But when I started hitting that fire with those towels, you know, we were young and stupid and didn't have a fire extinguisher, but now that I'm old and maybe a little less stupid, I've got one in every room of my house today. So when I was hitting the fire with with those towels, the flames shot out onto the wall and flew up the wall and across the ceiling toward me faster than you can imagine. I remember like a snapshot in, in in my mind, the sound that it made. It was like floof, floof up the walls. And uh, the best way I can describe it, um, as the flames shot up the walls and, and, and across the ceiling, uh, was that the flames didn't look um, to be small, separate, separate entities from one another, you know, like a fire in a fireplace looks. These were one single flame up the walls and and across the ceiling that covered the height and width of the entire room. It spread up the wall and came across the ceiling toward me like an ocean wave rolling into the shore, only faster, much faster, and hot. So then, realizing that this just wasn't a little fire, but that in fact the house was burning down, I slammed the bedroom door closed and ran into the living room at the front door, 
uh, with the plan to throw as many of our earthly belongings out to safety as I, as I possibly could. And just for your information, the time elapsed between my first smelling the smoke that was coming from a tiny little fire to literally running for my life from a room engulfed in flames was about eight or, eight or nine seconds tops. But I was not panicked uh, and was bound and determined to get as much stuff out as possible. This was my plan, at least. Uh, so on my first run through the living room to the front door, I grabbed my uh, Fender Stratocaster guitar and amp, uh, which was just sitting there plugged in in the living room, and in one sweeping motion threw them out the front door. Um, afterwards, the the plug, the prongs of the uh, electrical plug of my amp that was plugged into the outlet in the wall were just bent completely sideways at 90-degree angles where it was just ripped out of, out of the wall. Uh, then I turned to go back down the hallway to my bedroom and get the jewelry box that contained my most prized possessions, uh, material possessions on earth, and that was the rings, watches, cufflinks, and uh, mementos that I had inherited from my father. But already the hallway and living room was full of thick gray smoke. Um, I was having to pass in the hallway Derek's bedroom with the door closed where the fire was emanating from to get to my bedroom. Uh, my, my goal was to get my dad's jewelry box. And uh, what I planned to do was just simply hold my breath in the midst of all of that smoke. There weren't any flames outside of Derek's room yet as I had, you know, closed his door behind me. It was just smoke. So I would just hold my breath, run to my room, grab the jewelry box from my dresser, and run back into the living room to continue throwing other things of value and importance out the front door into my driveway. But I immediately learned that in a smoke-filled, burning building, you, you couldn't hold your breath no matter how you tried. Uh, because you just you choke and gag regardless of whether you're holding your breath or not. I don't know if this is true of all building materials when, when burning, but I know it's true of burning trailers. You know, when hearing this story, uh, some people, cowards mostly, will tell me how they would have reacted and how they would have got this and that out and how they wouldn't have been overcome by the heat and smoke. And, you know, I tell him that's what a bull leaves a big pile of in a field after he's eaten a bunch of wet grass. Remember Richard Pryor in one of his stand-up uh, comedy uh, programs where uh, he was talking about never-been-there brothers who uh, would say, Man, if I was a slave back then during slavery, I wouldn't have taken that from no white slave owner. I would have, you know, dot, dot, dot. But nobody, no one with any real experience in making personal life-or-death decisions, um, I'm talking about firefighters, combat veterans, and so forth, first responders, has ever said to me that they would have or could have done anything differently than I did. They know in those situations it becomes a matter simply of survival. 
they realize that the result of what I did and or did not do is that I survived. And based on that fact alone, that I'm here to tell the story, that's good enough for them and me. Because, you know, folks, we never know what we'll do in a vital situation like that until we're in it. A life or death situation, that is. I'm not so stupid as to tell soldiers who have been in battle with live rounds whizzing by their heads, artillery exploding all around them, their buddies getting blown apart right next to them. You know, if I were there, I'd have grabbed two grenades and ran out there and pulled the pin with my teeth and crawled and outflanked the enemy, and I would have... Man, I don't know what I'd do in a situation like that. And you know what? Neither do you, unless you've been there. I only know of two things I definitely would do in that situation, and that is, one, be terrified, and two, try to live through it. When I tried to run down the hall into my room, the smoke got into my eyes and lungs, and it felt like they were on fire, too. I couldn't see or breathe and couldn't hold my breath, either. Within seconds, the living room was so full of smoke and was hot as an oven. It was time to go. I turned, taking the last of my things and the one that means the most to me now. So that's how approximately two minutes after waking up or being woke up, I left, coughing and gagging through my front door carrying my first guitar, the classical guitar that my dad had given me as a kid, never to see any of my other worldly possessions again. I wonder at what a sight I must have been. You know, long john bottoms, USA flag shirt, sleeveless, emerging like some lunatic phoenix from the thick gray smoke, the roof of the trailer already in flames, clutching a guitar, choking and gasping for air. <laughs> to, to think of that now, it sounds like just another scene from a you know, J-Lo concert. <laughs> But man, I'd love to have a photo of that. So then I turned my attention to my car, which was parallel parked on the hill right in front of the trailer. I needed to move it in a hurry. But the problem was its doors were locked and the keys, you guessed it, were inside the house. By now the entire living room was in flames and the heat coming out of the front door towards my car was just extraordinary. That's an understatement. And it would literally knock you down. Only firemen and hot dogs at a weenie roast understand the kind of heat I'm talking about. Luckily, though, the driver's side of the car was facing away from the house. So crouching under the top of the driver's side of the car, you know, if I stood up, the heat would have just taken my head off. I was able with the help of Almighty God, to kick out the side window, leap in with my legs hanging out the window, and rip the automatic transmission shift down into neutral to roll the car down the hill to safety. Now there was nothing left to do but to just sit down in the snow and the only clothes I owned, that's a pair of long john underwear bottoms and a sleeveless American flag t-shirt, and cry. Neighbors started arriving, and they said they had called the fire department and that a fire truck was on the way. 
the boiler, which was uh, like a gas tank for the heater inside the trailer, was located between the bathroom and my bedroom at the end of the trailer. And if only the firemen could stop the fire before it reached that tank, it was obviously very combustible. Some of the belongings in my bedroom might be saved. You know, my bedroom was at the far end of the trailer and my door was also closed. Water damage, you know, from the fire hoses from the firemen would have still ruined all my clothes, furniture, and so forth. But I was praying that my father's rings and things would somehow be saved. Because I was way out in the country, however, a volunteer fire department had to be awakened in their homes and dispatched to the scene. Ironically, there was a city fire station with firemen at the ready and on call only about five minutes away from me, but because I was outside the city limits, I was forced to wait for the volunteer fire department to arrive. That took 45 minutes. Five or ten minutes before they arrived, the flames reached the middle of the trailer. Sitting there desperate for the sound of a fire truck, I painfully watched the gas tank explode, sending flames throughout the house and killing absolutely and finally any hope I had of saving anything else I owned. So, on Christmas 1983, all I had to my name and my 21 years was two guitars, an amp, a 1978 Pontiac Grand Prix with a stripped transmission and no driver's side window, a pair of long john bottoms, and an American flag t-shirt. That's it. Sound like a starter kit for a blues singer? Well, it was. Later that afternoon, two friends who Derek and I had a date to play basketball with showed up at our place. There was nothing left of the trailer except for the concrete foundation and smoldering rubble. They were positive that I was dead, having seen the way I slept and knowing that I was home at the time. They were hopeful that Derek might have been at work when the fire happened. They found me later at a Red Cross shelter downtown trying to figure out a way to get some clothes. Uh, you know, I had no wallet, no checkbook, no money, no ID. They had a real surprised look on their faces when they saw me, saw me alive, that is. And that's the happy ending to this story, that I was alive. You cannot persuade me that there are not supernatural beings, angelic, I believe, which intercede on our behalf, unseen by us. My waking up and getting up when I didn't have to at six o'clock in the morning and then Stopping to drink water out of a sink with my hands is so completely out of character for me as to be nearly impossible. It was so unlike me that it would be less incredible if I stood up right now and started dancing like Gene Kelly and reciting Tolstoy in Swahili. Just impossible. If I hadn't awoken at all, or if I had awoke and gone back to sleep, or if I had awoke, gotten up, and gone straight to my bedroom, I'm positive that I would not be here today. That's just a fact. I was lucky to get out alive anyway, being fully aware of the danger and still trying foolishly to go back in and get things out. But it wasn't my time yet. My father in heaven knew I had songs to sing and records to make and a girl to marry and two sons to raise. And now from since the writing of this, this blog, a, a daughter 
who is now 13 years old. And I had many lives to touch with music. And if you think that what we say and do in our everyday lives doesn't affect other people, brother, you're asleep and need to wake up. Maybe hearing this will cause you to take a fire extinguisher home tonight instead of a pizza, or simply to go and hug your kids real tight, or to say a little prayer before you go to bed. As I'm watching Katrina's devastation on the Gulf Coast on television and the helpless thousands suddenly without a home or clothing, I can sympathize with them as someone who has been there. And as I see the bodies of people... As I see the bodies of people killed by the disaster, I realize that there, but for the grace of God, go I. We easily forget how precious and fragile the gift of life really is. Maybe this little story will help to remind you how very lucky you are to be alive and well enough to read this or to hear this in a home that has a roof on it because it has also reminded me. I thank you. I love you all. Um, may God bless you and keep you all in his care. Until we meet again, either here or in, in hyperspace somewhere, on the internet or at one of my shows, I thank you, Lucia. I love you and appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to hang with you and your listeners for a few minutes on Catch the Story. I am and will remain your friend till the end. This is Lightning Charlie. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Up next, we have Alan Friedman. Alan's story, back then when I knew it all, is an inspirational story of his journey from being an enemy of the gay community to being one of its strongest supporters. Alan is a fellow podcaster and author. Back then. When I knew it all. There's a world of difference between spirituality and religion. I know because I've lived to experience them both. One is teachable, possessing a spirit of constant growth and change, while the other has the disease of needing to be right. 
it has nothing to do with being right as to a matter. The emphasis is on the need. He or she who needs to be right is in a prison of their own creation. No matter who gets hurt or worse in the process, even family members, what's at issue is one thing and one thing only, that the disease is satiated, satisfied, and damn its victims. Back then, I was a proud member of the religious right and all it stood for, and defiantly against, notably the mere mention of intimate same-sex relationships and the GLBT community, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Surely these acts were an affront against the divine, a scourge upon the earth and would have eternal consequences to the participants unless they repented. I was ready at a moment's notice to cite as needed the homo scriptures, as I've come to call them. Seven scriptures from the Bible, the religious rite, used to seemingly validate the inerrancy of their position. To me, it all seemed airtight. Thank God, I thought. When it comes to our children, that's one disaster we don't have to concern ourselves with. But then. My sister-in-law and my wife's friend's sister, Shana, had requested a family meeting. The attendees would be me, Fran, Shana, and our daughter, Jennifer. I can visualize the scene as if it took place yesterday. Nothing was heard except the two words Jen spoke. I'm gay. For me, all the air got sucked out of the room. Fren cried quietly. I felt a mounting storm of holy anger starting to build within me, not pointed at Jen, but at Shana, who apparently had known this for a significant period of time and had the gall to keep it from Fran and I. How dare she? Was she naive regarding what she had become a willing participant to? She was in concert with our daughter's unholy union, an accomplice. Jennifer was con condemned, certain to suffer a dismal, eternal future. I thought, was it all worth it, Shana? Just so you can remain close to your niece? In my eyes, she was now a champion for the dark side. Listening to her defense of Jen's chosen lifestyle and experiencing her shallowness 
and weakness repulsed me. I wholeheartedly believed that all Jen needed was to be divinely healed. Clearly, or so I thought, she simply had chosen a mistake. With God's grace, she would reverse that decision, return to the light, and be normal. Little did I know that grace had other plans in mind. How long the book rested on Fran's bedroom and table before I first noticed it, I don't recall. All I knew is that Fran probably had no intention of reading it, as she's more of a hands-on person in her approach to things. Who was the intended reader? Me? Fran? One evening, my eyes were drawn to the book, unmistakably fixated. What message did Jennifer want to convey to us, to me? What infamy did she want us to believe? After all, it was me who knew the truth, and nothing and no one was going to convince me otherwise. Or so I thought. I picked the book up, got into bed and started to read and then read some more. I couldn't put it down. I felt like I was in the grasp of some invisible force that would not let go until it had achieved its intended purpose. To say that I was blindsided is an understatement of the highest order. I was at the same time both energized and awestruck. Sleep would not have its way for hours. It was eventual exhaustion that provided a respite from the divine surgery that was now fully in motion. Little had I realized that all my prayers for meaningful, deep life and heart change to be affected in my daughter Jennifer and my sister-in-law Shana were actually being redirected back to me. The divine had a work of grace to be accomplished in my heart. It was my attention God wanted and received. Since my spiritual heart transplant, I've become a vocal champion for the LGBT community, a supporting author, and most important of all, my daughter Jennifer and I have been beautifully reconciled for years. She's my business coach, friend, and advisor. And now, regarding life, the universe, and knowing it all, I have an abundance of questions and very few answers. To find out more about Lightning Charlie and Alan Friedman, 
please check our headlines on our website www.relatable-media.com And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatable-media.com. Thank you for listening. And whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.